Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all of the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're grateful to our members who make all of this possible and hope that you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members get access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our DSR Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed that you can add to your favorite podcast app. And we're not stopping there, as we'll soon be announcing additional programming and content partnerships to make membership an absolute must-have. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code MAY2022 at checkout to gain access to all of our exclusive benefits for just $5 per month. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, coming to you from Washington, D.C., it being Thursday. Of course, we have my co-host here, Dr. Kavita Patel. How are you doing today, Kavita? Good, good, David. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yes, as, as, as am I. And as we often have here, because we like having him here so much, we have Norm Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing today, Norm? I'm about where Kavita is. Uh, It's been a rather upsetting week. No doubt. And we have a new guest joining us, Julie Rovner. She's the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News and host of KHN's What the Health podcast. Welcome, Julie. Thanks for having me. So obviously, we're here today to talk about what is the big dominant story in Washington this week? What, and you know, strangely enough, what actually should be the big dominant story, and that is the leak uh, that took place of Justice Alito's decision in the case that will ultimately result in overturning all or most of Roe v. Wade, something that many of us had been expecting for some time. We think this is so important that we're actually going to break our discussion of it into two podcasts. During this podcast, we're going to talk about the health and the political ramifications of this. And then in a subsequent podcast, and you'll be able to listen to both of them, we will be joined by Steve Vladek, Barb McQuaid, and Dahlia Lithwick, and we'll talk about the legal consequences then. So you can listen to both. Let's start with the health consequences, if we can, Julie, because as as infuriating as this is, as horrifying as it is from a moral perspective and in terms of what it might be leading to, as difficult 
as it is to fathom in terms of the contortionism that was involved in, in, in coming to this decision. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is a healthcare issue that's going to affect millions of people. How do you think it's going to affect those people? Well, I mean, obviously it will vary, but there will be, yeah, there are already hundreds of thousands of women who, for one reason or another, seek an abortion, whether they just don't want to be pregnant, whether they have medical issues, who are having trouble finding it because there are so few abortions available in so many parts of the country. And obviously we're seeing the dress rehearsal for this going on in Texas, where the Supreme Court has failed to stop what is at least at the moment an unconstitutional six-week ban on abortion. And women from Texas seeking abortion are flooding to neighboring states, which are also rushing to restrict abortion. So we are we are already seeing a lot of, of women unable to obtain medical care. There are doctors in Texas who are worried when, when women have miscarriages and they have to do procedures that they're going to be accused of doing an abortion. I mean, there's there's ramifications beyond just women getting abortion medically. I know Kavita can speak to this probably better than I can. Let's see if you're right about that, Kavita. <laughs> there you go. Uh, no, and I, I want to encourage, Julie has an excellent kind of piece on this. It's on the Kaiser Family Foundation website, I believe, that summarizes this and builds on, I think, importantly, her years covering the Supreme Court as well when she was at NPR and also now. But for the health ramifications, I think so many people appropriately concentrate on the health of the woman, which is appropriate. We know that already in states like Texas, having limited and restricted abortion and reproductive services can increase maternal mortality in two, the two digits. And then now from both a UK study and studies done domestically, we know there's a much higher proportion of women who are turned away from abortions or are asked or forced to carry out pregnancies that have mental health problems, everything from depression all the way to kind of serious medical illness. But what I don't think it's enough attention is the ramification on the, the household or the family, not only that particular pregnancy where the children have had also kind of rates that are much greater rates of higher mental health issues, but then also subsequently other health conditions as well, everything from attention deficit disorder, which sometimes constitutes mental health, but is sometimes classified a, a bit separately, as well as physical conditions worsening. So we're talking about diabetes worsening, we're talking about obesity. And, and so that's, I think, a ripple effect. And I guess where I land on this, and I, I just talked to a friend in Texas who is an OBGYN, non-abortion services provider, what she said to me, and I think it's just something I'll put out there because I don't think people realize this, is the impact on training. I mean. I was able to train in medical abortions, felt very comfortable in it because I, I, we, in medicine, we say, see one, do one, teach one. And it's because you see somebody doing something, then you do it. And then you teach somebody that entire process is gone. And she said that even doctors like her who want to do this fear the protesters, the targeting, it's a little bit like the public health officials that want masks and vaccines. So anyway, as you can see, I think it's, so much broader than even just this one issue of, quote, abortion or reproductive services. And I, I, I've talked to residents in OBGYN programs who are concerned that they're not going to be able to learn. I mean, you know, that learning to an early elective surgical abortion is the same procedure that they right. use for a lot of things that aren't abortions that they need to be able to do. And there's a lot of concern that we're going to have sort of a generation of healthcare professionals who 
can't deliver actual medical care to women. David, let me add one other element here, which is a health element and and other things. A lot of the uh, people who are applauding this preliminary decision, and let's be clear, what the court does is they circulate an opinion and they may get changes along the way. We don't know what will happen, but it's obvious that there are five justices who initially signed on to some opinion ending Roe. So we're getting a lot of these, well, we can just do more adoptions. Let's be clear first that in a whole lot of states, they are curtailing adoption. They're not letting people uh, adopt babies if it's a mixed race couple. They're not letting babies adopt if it's a gay couple. And what we're going to end up with is more foster families. We're going to end up with private organizations, probably the same private prison groups like the GEO group that will set up orphanages. If you want to see some of the health consequences of this, go back and watch Oliver Twist or watch (laughs) Annie. They're going to be kids who are brought into this world who are then put into horrible situations and abused and likely to grow up deeply damaged because there will be nothing done for a group of people where pro-life means it begins at conception and it ends at birth. Julie, contrary to the assertion in the draft Alito decision that we saw, and that I should add the Supreme Court verified the authenticity of, the reality is that abortion has been considered a fairly normal, common component of healthcare since the dawn of time. There are Chinese examples of it. There's an Egyptian papyrus that's 4,000 years old that writes of it. It's mentioned in everything from the Bible onward. And most societies have viewed it as something that would periodically take place, would be necessary to take place, would certainly be necessary to take place if the health of the mother was threatened. In many, many societies for much of history, including the United States until the middle of the 19th century, it was not illegal, certainly prior to what was then called the quickening, which is the time when a a fetus could be felt to move, which is typically 16 to 20 weeks. But then came this movement which happened to coincide with women moving to have more autonomy broadly and could easily be seen, I think, as an effort to control women in the mid part of the 19th century and onward to make this illegal. How do you view this decision in in that context? Well, actually, one of the main ways abortion became illegal was that the then nascent American Medical Association wanted to put midwives and other sort of lay people out of business in the medical profession. And they pushed very hard to get all these state laws passed that made abortion illegal. Abortion was largely, as you point out, not illegal in the United States until the late 1800s. And it was a matter of the medical profession itself trying to, and the the very heavily male medical profession at that point, trying to basically, you know, say that we are the only ones who can practice medicine and anybody else who tries to do it is is a crime, or as we now talk about it, practicing medicine without a license. That's the actual history of how abortion became illegal in the United States. Kavita, in terms of, of what this means, some states seem likely to ban abortion effectively. 
that's not just red states, by the way, but I, there, there are moves afoot to do that in, in swing states across the United States. People will have to go across state lines, but of course, those people who can't afford it are going to be in a bad position. I saw an interesting article yesterday that also noted that if you're in the military and you, you don't have the option of determining where you are, that may cause other kinds of uh, ramifications. It's unclear what the provisions are likely to be in cases of rape or incest, or even with regard to the health of the mother. It seems to me that the knock-on effects of this thing are not fully understood, but they are really profound. It's worse than that, David. Yeah. We're already seeing in some states, Missouri being one, where they want to criminalize it if, pe- if people from Missouri go across state lines. We had uh, Senator Kramer from North Dakota, who not only said that the health of the mother, the life of the mother is secondary to that of the child. This is the new pro-life. But also that it's time to nationalize the ban. And there is no doubt in my mind that this Supreme Court, if you got a Republican president and a Republican House and Senate, and they banned abortion nationally, would accept it. This idea that used to be there, that we should just go back and let the states do it, bad as that is, because some states would do such draconian things, is now being thrown over the side by the anti-abortion extremists. I refuse to call them pro-life anymore because they're anything but. And we're going to see as well in many states now a move to call any abortion murder. And we're not that far from not just as in uh, Texas and other places trying to penalize the doctors or in some cases imprison or criminalize the doctors, but we're not that far from criminalizing the women as well. And every miscarriage, every miscarriage is going to end up very possibly in court or at least being uh, investigated by police. Can I point out that, that in this draft opinion, and again, we don't know that this is going to be the final opinion or that it will say this, but there is a phrase in this draft opinion from uh, Justice Alito about, uh, they quote, state interest in potential life at every stage of development, which could reach. So we could be talking not just about abortion, but about contraception, which some abortion opponents believe that some forms of contraception are abortifacient. And that, in fact, it was Justice Alito who wrote the Hobby Lobby decision in 2014, which said that if in this case, the, the employer believed that the morning after pill, which is not an abortifacient, that's not how it works. But because the employer believed that it was their religious belief that they could then ban it in terms of not having to provide it under the Affordable Care Act. So this could be stretched way back to affect much more than abortion. Right. I've been trying to frame this discussion in a thoughtful, you know, intellectually responsible way as opposed to simply venting. But, you know, when you describe it that way, I have to say the first thing I think of when you talk about the state interest in life is that by and large, these opponents of abortion are the same people who don't want to pay for health care, who don't want to provide people with the right to health and treatment, and who promote assault weapons. It's very hard for me to get my brain around the notion that you're pro-life and pro-assault weapon at the same time. This is not the the pro-life movement that I sort of grew up covering. 
Henry Hyde himself worked with Henry Waxman, liberal of California, to appropriate money for programs that would address infant mortality and maternal mortality and, you know, basically taking care. And, and Henry Hyde said he did not believe that his, dis, you know, his uh, opposition to abortion should end at birth. He believed that he had a responsibility to take care of those babies. And that was really, they at least paid lip service to it in the 1980s and 1990s. And I'm seeing less and less of that. So Kavita, as a doctor, as a woman, as somebody from Texas, how do you feel about this? I I think I've, I've done a disservice by not starting there. I mean, I think that it's such a, it's such a kind of (laughs) <laughs> Let's put it this way, David. There are a number of us all fitting that category of descriptors, women, physicians, Texas, we're all kind of in this like underground Facebook group, I guess, what, whatever the right way to call it is, ironically, using Facebook to vent. And the kind of unifying theme is like, we're not shocked anymore. This is just an outright, why is it shocking to us that people are trying to tell doctors what to do. It's been that way through the pandemic. We're forcing doctors to prescribe ivermectin when they don't want to, when they think it could be bad. We're forcing doctors to say, you know, you don't need a vaccine when we know that it can be helpful. So it feels like it's just yet one more blow. And I really appreciate Julie's comment about the American Medical Association, because I'll actually point out that as of today, there have been very few, like all the organizations have given these statements of like, we support women's rights to health, et cetera. Nobody has come out and said that this is just a full on assault and we won't take it. And that the only person that's kind of done that is the Surgeon General, who basically said, like, reproductive health should be between like the patient and their clinician, period. Like, step out of it, forget about it. It's not your business. So it does feel, David, like it's just one more thing. And then, I mean, you know, kind of the population, all four of us have talked about like black and brown communities. I mean, just to get to it, the people who are going to get access to kind of these telehealth services and what I'm calling abortion hackarounds, which is what a lot of us are trying to help with, we're able to use um, the public health emergency to prescribe pills across the borders, et cetera, like that. That is also like incredibly health literate, like accessible populations. It's a very small group of women that can get from A to B to C. And so we're still just widening what we've been talking about during the pandemic, kind of all these disparities, and it just feels exhausting. And then I, I, I will say this, I'm also take kind of, I told my husband, who's like very upset that I'm so dark about this. We have a five-year-old girl. And I said, like, what kind of world am I raising her in? Like, what, what, what is her future going to be like? I grew up always thinking kind of, you know, the abortion and that reproductive services and I've had a miscarriage. I would be somebody that if I were back in that exact same position in Texas, that I would be a target or I might, not, I might not find somebody who would have helped me at the time that I had my miscarriage. So to put these women through these gauntlets of torture, what am I bringing up a daughter in? And it's just very, there's nothing positive I can find in this, nothing. Well, I don't think there's anything positive, although I do think that you, you, know, you do raise a point, which is whatever... Justice Alito and the others think they're doing in terms of curtailing women's rights or setting new precedents. If you have money, you'll find a way around it. If you don't, your rights are going to be curtailed. And the divisions are going to grow and grow, as you say. But of course, Norm, the, you know, the other dimension of this is the tip of the iceberg. And I have seen some people on Twitter and elsewhere go, don't talk about the tip of the iceberg. This is big enough. 
But when you look at something like this, you have to look at the knock-on effects. And if the Alito argument turns on this issue that uh, reverses the Roe notion of a right to privacy, what seems next? You know, Obergefell, the right of gay people to get married, other other kinds of things like this. Where where do you see this headed? Not in the health knock-on effects, but perhaps in terms of the public policy and legal knock-on effect. So let me start with a broader point, David. The Republican Party, which is a cult now, consists of two groups of people fundamentally. One is extremists and the other is cowards. There are plenty who understand that this is a crazy, slippery slope. By the way, a whole lot of Republicans are going to be very uneasy with this decision. They wanted to have the issue, but not to have it come to this. I think the expectation was that the court would chip away. You know, they've used the shadow docket a lot to try and make decisions. I thought the next step would be basically saying, all right, Mississippi, 15 weeks, that's okay. And then start to, and maybe turn a blind eye as they did already to statutes like Texas's, which would make a difference. But to go all out, which is what Alito's wanted to do for a long time, is still pretty stunning to them. But I mention this in part because of what we're seeing in some of these state statutes. The problem is that you're going to have the most extreme people writing laws in states that call abortion murder, that criminalize everybody involved, that, as I said before, will take every miscarriage and insist that it be investigated as a potential abortion. They're going to start to treat the morning after pill in these states as an illicit drug. They will probably try and get the post office to open up suspicious packages and then to penalize people under drug laws. But what's going to happen is if you introduce these extreme bills, the cowards are going to be afraid to vote against them because they will be shunned or they'll lose their jobs in the next primary. So we're going to get just terrible legislation passed. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if these five extreme justices do this and get away with it, there is absolutely no doubt that they will expand the use in other areas. And we might start with contraception. And remember that so much of this is being driven by evangelical Protestants, especially, who for a long time, you know, you could be pro-life in the way it used to be and believe, as many of my conservative friends have, that you need to expand contraception services and, and all kinds of reproductive activities so that you can help women and prevent unneeded pregnancies in the first place. But for a whole group of people out there, if you have sex, you should be punished. And we don't want to give you any out in this, any kind of sex. And that now includes sex and marriage uh, in many cases. So contraception is coming down the road. And at the same time, Griswold, you can, we can talk about Obergefell. I think we can take it back to any kind of homosexual relationships. I think we are going to see a slippery slope here that will lead us in, in directions that are really chilling and challenging. And we'll wait and see, you know, in the aftermath of Hobby Lobby, what if a Jewish organization said abortion is in our 
creed, and we want to continue to provide services. Do you think that Sam Alito and the other justices would say, well, this is no different than the Christian groups that want to uh, avoid giving help to, uh, to women? No, they'll say this is different. They'll find a, a way out of it. If this is allowed to stand and this court, which, you know, when uh, uh, Sonia Sotomayor talked in an, uh, another case about the stench of politics hitting the court, this is going to delegitimize the court, which is why they're focusing so much, the uh, people who applaud this decision, on the leak and not on the action itself. And its ramifications are going to be broader even than some of these issues that we're talking about. And maybe at some point, we're going to have a Congress willing to do something about it. It puts an enormous influence on the 2022 elections, and that includes elections for governors in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. The Michigan law that would this would revert to says no abortions in the case of rape, incest, or the life of the mother period. So that's what's there. And if you get a Republican governor, they'll sign something that basically codifies that. And we'll see similar things in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. These elections now become absolutely critical in so many ways. And that's exactly what I want to talk about when we get back from the break. This is when we take a break. Say goodbye to the folks who have been listening in the general public uh, who are not DSR members and encourage them to become DSR members so they can listen to the whole podcast in each of our whole podcasts where you get another 33% of the podcast if you're a member. So uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership and join us as more and more people are doing every single week. And then we will, uh, you'll be able to hear what we've got next talking, picking up on Norm's point and on other great points like that in future podcasts. For those of you who are not our members and who are not planning to become one right now. We'll see you again soon. For those of you who are a member, stand by.